Well, turn toward the back of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 17. We are approaching the end of this book, just a few chapters remaining. And this incredible vision that the Lord gave to the Apostle John, instructed him to record it, to write it down for our sake. What kindness. In the last several chapters of Revelation, chapter 17 through 21 or so, we, we are introduced to two powerful opposing realities expressed through different images. And so beginning in this chapter, chapter 17, we will meet two beautiful women, a prostitute and a bride. We will meet two great cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. We will see at work two opposing kingdoms, the kingdom of the beast and the kingdom of the lamb. And that drama takes up the next uh, four or five chapters of Revelation until you get to the sort of epilogue in chapter 22. Today we'll focus on chapter 17. There's an angel who comes and introduces us to the first of these two women, the prostitute Babylon. Uh, And uh, chapter 17 and 18 really belong together, uh, but for the sake of uh, uh, time and just uh, a manageable scope, we're going to do chapter 17 today, which kind of tells us the character and history of Babylon, if you will. And then chapter 18 really unfolds and dives into the fall and ultimate destruction of Babylon. So let's look together at the first six verses of Revelation 17. I'll read for you beginning in verse one, and we're just going to read the first six verses, really five and a half verses, honestly, uh, of this uh, chapter. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this vision, this next sequence, or this next portion of John's vision begins with an angel coming to him and giving him an invitation. And you'll notice, perhaps, that the angel who comes to him is one of the angels who had just poured out the bowls of wrath in judgment upon the world that we read about in chapters 15 and 16, which in a sense covered that entire age again between the the first coming of Christ and his future uh, return. 
Uh, but it culminates clearly in the, the sixth and seventh bowls in final, full, eschatological judgment. It is the, the end of human history. It is the final judgment upon the wicked and the ushering in of the eternal kingdom. That's what we saw in the, the seven bowls being poured out. And now one of those angels who had one of the bowls with the plagues uh, come to John and he gives him this invitation in verse one. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. If you were to look ahead, you can do this, uh, but we're going to just bounce right back. If you were to look ahead in chapter 21, verse 9, you would find that very same phrase introducing the second character, if you will, in this vision. Chapter 21, verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So in chapter 21, we're introduced to the second of these women. The first of those women, the, the prostitute, Babylon, is uh, introduced to us here in chapter 17. But so we clearly see that this is, uh, these are images that belong together in their contrast. So they're going to set up clear opposition and contrast with each other. And so he invites John to come and behold the judgment of the great prostitute seated on many waters, which of course is a strange image and it feels a little bit out of nowhere, but as the text unfolds, and indeed as the angel begins to explain some of the mystery of those images, it becomes clear who this woman, this prostitute, represents. The language of sexual immorality, which recurs here, it's a, it, she's called a prostitute, and it says that she's committed sexual immorality with the kings of the earth, and the, the dwellers on the earth are drunk with the wine of this sexual immorality. The language of sexual immorality throughout this passage uh, is uh, figurative language. The main danger that John's vision is presenting is not sexual sin specifically, although clearly there is danger there. Clearly that uh, uh, characterizes much of the sort of godless, decadent, pagan world. But it is specifically the danger of idolatry. And so sexual immorality in this passage is sort of a figurative representation for idol worship, which is why she's presented as a prostitute, because she has given herself away. She has sold herself, as it were, to false gods, right? And so there, there is the worship of a false god or multiple false gods, if you will, through this, this prostitute that he calls Babylon. And so to say that Babylon has committed sexual immorality is to say that uh, she has worshipped and served other gods. And it seems in this case, based on this description of all of the jewels and the, the gold and the fine linen and scarlet and purple with which she's adorned and the golden cup in her hand, it seems that, uh, that she has participated in idolatry, perhaps particularly because of the allure of economic prosperity and success. And so the things that you associate in, in, in the world with the good life, right? Even things that we say maybe kind of innocently represent the American dream, like getting the, the best uh, job and the most money and the best toys and the biggest house and the nicest cars and the 2.5 kids and, and all of the things that sort of make up the, uh, the dream of the good life uh, in our world. 
there is back behind that pursuit a forsaking of God as the true treasure and a going after of false gods and idol worship. You can see language like this a lot in the Old Testament prophets, specifically Hosea uh, in chapters 11 and 12, uh, and uh, excuse me, Hosea chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, and uh, the prophet Ezekiel frequently used the language of harlotry, is the, the language of one selling herself to describe the people going after idols, right? It's a, it's a recurring sort of image. And so it calls that back. Now, while sexual immorality is used figuratively here to point us toward idolatry, like that's what's being represented, I would suggest that its literal expression usually doesn't follow very far behind idolatry in the human heart. Once some other idol has been put in the place of primacy, whether it's success or it's wealth or it's prosperity or it's pleasure or whatever, then the literal forms of sexual immorality usually accompany. All right, so we don't need to go too far in, in, in trying to think that this has nothing to do with real sexual immorality, but the heart of it is idolatry. That's, that's what is seen here. So let's keep trying to unpack who this woman is, who, who it represents. This woman with all of the, um, the this uh, gold and pearls and fine linen is sitting upon, you'll see in verse three, a scarlet beast that is full of blasphemous names that has seven heads and 10 horns. I believe, and most commentators that I at least consulted with uh, this week also agree that this beast is the same one as the beast that we met in chapter 13, the beast that rises out of the sea, right? So the dragon went to make war on the church, the offspring of the woman in chapter, at the end of chapter 12, and chapter 13 begins with this beast rising out of the sea with blasphemous names and with many horns and many heads. Uh, and he uh, has what appears to be a mortal wound and then he recovers from it. And so people, dwellers on the earth, worship the beast and marvel at the beast. And so I believe that this scarlet beast is the same one. The chief difference is that now it's, its color is given, which it wasn't before. So it's a scarlet beast, it's a red beast. Uh, but clearly this beast serves Satan and functions in much the same way. It's uh, seven heads and 10 horns represent the, the strength and authority of, uh, of the city of man, as Augustine called it, which it has distorted and used for wicked purposes. So if you'll recall the beast in chapter 13, my argument for what that represented was state persecution. That is godless human government that sets itself up against God and against his people and actually brings persecution and harm upon the church of Jesus throughout the age. So I think this is that same beast. And so it's taken authority and strength which in themselves are not bad things, and twisted them to serve wicked ends, to serve the purposes of the dragon, that is, of Satan himself. And when we consider government and the role of human civil authorities, it's good to be reminded that God institutes human government to serve his good purposes. Right? Government is not all bad. 
We, uh, it's easy for us to sort of badmouth the government and, and, uh, and have negative uh, uh, feelings about paying taxes and things like that. Not anybody's favorite time of the year. But nevertheless, government was instituted by God to serve the good of his uh, creatures. Um, we're told in Romans 13 and in 1 Peter 2, those are two chapters in the New Testament that unfold that, unpack that a bit, where God puts governments in place to, for the blessing and the flourishing of society and the good of people, to wield the sword against evildoers. It's the language of Romans 13. But Babylon, the city of man, instead uses its authority and power to defy God setting itself up as a rival kingdom, seeking to lead people away from God and even inflicting harm upon those who belong to him. And we can see throughout history, evidences, examples of human governments that have very much taken that form. We can see around the world, even today, governments that very much would fit this category. So let me pause and just give us a brief exhortation here to remember that human government still serves God's purposes. And even in a fallen world, we are instructed to be subject to these institutions for the Lord's sake, out of honor and worship to him. Now, the authority of government over the church is not absolute, of course. We don't do everything that a government says just because they say to do it. There are lines that may be crossed where, as Peter and John say to the Jerusalem officials in Acts 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. Because we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard, right? When they were trying to, to give them a law to stop preaching the gospel. Well, if it's up to obeying you or obeying God, we're going to keep obeying God, right? There's a, there's a point at which obedience to the government, sub submission to the government actually puts us in violation of God's commands. If the government commands us to sin, like bow down to this image of Nebuchadnezzar that he said to Daniel and, and the people of Israel in Babylon, or if the law enforced is itself unjust, contrary to God's word, for example, go to the back of the bus I think civil disobedience becomes a godly responsibility. There is a point at which disobedience to the government is necessary for the sake of conscience and for the sake of obedience to the Lord. I think in this day, we're maybe inclined, some are inclined to draw that line a little sooner than it seems to me that we've reached where there's a government mandate about wearing masks and we think that this is this becomes the point at which we need to fight back and like demand our sort of religious freedoms there are people that see that and think that and i'm not trying to disparage those who see it that way but i think maybe we're drawing the line a little bit too close um so there's a point at which obedience to government becomes disobedience to god and clearly the call there is is to, to disobey uh and embrace the consequences, whatever they may be. Certainly for these Christians reading the book of Revelation in the first century, there were real pressures. There were real commands of government, demands. If you want to participate in economic trade in the society, you need to say that Caesar is Lord. And if you're not willing to say that, 
then you don't get to trade. You don't get to sell. You don't get to buy food. There are real consequences to standing for our faith in Christ in times like that. Well, so the image of the prostitute then conveys uh, that, that, excuse me, the fact that this woman is called a prostitute uh, represents that which allures, right? It tells us that Babylon, the city, uh, is that which entices and seduces people away from God. And the fact that the woman on the beast is beautiful Right? She's seen in rich clothes and, and adorned with all of this gold and, uh, and, and the dwellers on the earth and the kings of the earth have all gone to her right, and committed immorality with her. Right? Um, so the fact that she is, is, is portrayed as a beautiful woman to the eye uh, indicates that people are drawn to her, that they are seduced by her, that they are led into carrying out the abominations that fill her cup the things that are detestable to God, the things that are opposed to his will and his word. And so in other words, the economic excesses uh, and materialism and wealth, uh, the prospect of power and influence, and perhaps even the allure of unfettered sexual freedom uh, have lured people into the idolatries of the city of man. I think that's what Babylon represents. It's the it's the sort of totalitarian form of human government and the city that it creates and establishes where God is belittled, where self is exalted, and where material wealth and power and pleasure are pursued at all costs. Verse 5 tells us the name, uh, there's a name written on her forehead, a name of mystery. And the name on her forehead is Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And it calls it a mystery, I think, in the sense that it's a familiar term. Babylon, of course, would have been well known to the people reading this book as one of the great empires uh, during the days of the Old Testament that opposed Israel, where, of course, uh, the, the Jews were uh, captured and taken into captivity um, in Babylon. So Babylon would be very familiar to them, but it's used in a different way. It, it, it's applied more broadly here. Clearly, this woman is not the Babylon of history, which no longer existed by the time John was writing the Revelation. Right? So he's not saying this woman is this ancient empire, you know, where Nebuchadnezzar uh, took us all captive. That, that's, that's clearly not, not what's in view. I don't think it's even a particular future kingdom that's to arise at the end of history, just prior to Christ's return. There are those who think that's what's being portrayed here, that Babylon represents some particular kingdom that will arise to prominence and come to power that will oppose and defy God. I don't think it's a particular kingdom at all. I think Babylon represents godless kingdoms that oppose God and his ways with values that are contrary to what he has revealed in his word and often with specifically anti-Christian policies. Babylon therefore represents what Augustine called the city of man, as opposed to the city of God. God is setting up his city, man sets up his city with its own values and its own structures and its own systems that promote worship of self instead of worship of God. And so again, I think that it represents these kinds of kingdoms, these kinds of cities, these kinds of governments throughout history, right? Through any time between the first coming of Christ and his 
second coming from Rome in John's day, which clearly I think the people reading Revelation would have thought of Rome, um, to communist China or the Taliban in our day. Uh, one commentator says, in cultures that defy God, an insidious conspiracy unites the relentless pursuit of wealth and pleasure and the ruthless exercise of political and coercive power. And so you get this picture of a, a system of life and a society and laws that are founded upon that which God detests. And I don't intend to disparage the many good gifts that God gives to us as citizens of the United States, but I would suggest that you can see the seeds and even some of the fruit of this kind of godless ideology, even in our own country. It's, it's there. The drive for power and prestige and wealth, the, the value of the strong over the weak, the pursuit of self-exaltation and self-definition over and against clear and obvious truth. The seeds are there. And finally, we're told in verse 6 that the woman is drunk with the blood of saints. We already saw in chapter 13 that state persecution of Christians is one of Satan's primary tools in his war on the church throughout the age. And the prostitute's drunkenness on the martyr's blood is simply another expression of this fact. Right? So as these godless systems come to power, the people of God are crushed underfoot. Satan hates God. And therefore, he hates the people of God, and he exerts his influence over human institutions to lead them to perpetuate uh, persecution and oppression against the church of Jesus Christ. And so Babylon, this woman, this prostitute seated on many waters, is what, summarized well by Augustine's phrase, the city of man. So we've already been told in verse 1 that we're going to see the judgment of Babylon. That's what the, the content of this vision is going to uh, to entail. And so let's read now the rest of chapter 17 and find out how that's revealed, how that unfolds. So picking up in the, the second half of verse 6, I'll read through the end of chapter 17. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. 
and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. There's a lot there, and we're going to try to go through it quickly, and I can't give you satisfying answers to every detail here. The beast that was and is not and is about to rise and go to destruction, that sounds to me like a, a, an echo of the beast in chapter 13 with the mortal wound that was, that was healed, and the people saw that he was healed from his mortal wound. He appeared to have died, and he came back, and they marveled. And they worship the beast. And people's response to this beast is the same thing. It says he was and he is not and he is to come. He will rise from the abyss. And this is Satan's a demonic being. Uh, and the people will marvel at the beast. Because it was and is not and is to come. And so we're dealing with, with the same beast here. And those who marvel... Those who worship, we're said, are, again, he uses the phrase dwellers on earth. Dwellers on earth, middle of verse 8. That's a technical term in Revelation meaning unbelievers. People who live on the earth who do not follow God, do not believe in Jesus. The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Who marvels at the beast? Who worships the beast? Who makes themselves gladly, willingly subservient to the city of man opposed to God? Those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. There's an encouragement and an exhortation here. The encouragement is this, follower of Jesus, brother or sister in the Lord, your name has been written from before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book. What joy! Jesus told his disciples in, in Luke 10, I think, where he sent them out to go and cast out demons and preach the gospel. And they came back and said, wow, even the demons are subject to us. And he said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rather, rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. There is no greater joy, no greater assurance, no greater hope, no greater comfort in the midst of storm and trial and persecution than to know my name is in the Lamb's book. Praise God. You can withstand the pressures and the seductions of the city of man because you are his. And there's an exhortation. Friend, if you haven't turned to Jesus in faith, do it now before it's too late. Those who worship the beast and secure divine wrath for themselves are those whose names are not in the book of life. Trust in Christ. Verse 9 introduces things that are virtually impossible to, to interpret well. You will, if you read 10 commentaries, you will get 10 different ideas about what this means. And if they're honest commentaries, most of them will say, nobody really knows what to do with these verses. Uh, it's, it may be the hardest few verses in the whole book of Revelation. You get this sort of series of kings and kingdoms. Um, the beast, the, the horns of the beast represent, uh, or excuse me, the heads of the beast represent seven mountains and seven kings. And you get five kings and, who already were and one who uh, isn't yet. And then another one 
uh, who's coming to power. And then there's the beast, who's the eighth, but he's also belongs to the seven. Like it, it's very, it's odd, it's unusual, it's a little bit hard to uh, to decipher very clearly. A few things that I think are pretty clear. First of all, when he says the seven heads are seven mountains upon which the prostitute sits, that's clearly a reference to Rome. The seven hills upon which Rome was situated. And so when the, the readers of Revelation hear the seven mountains, they're clearly thinking Babylon, Rome. Okay, they've got it. City of man is in their minds. And he says it also represents uh, seven kings. And there's been all kinds of suggestions about what these might be. Are they Roman emperors? And then you kind of go back to the top. Okay, Augustus and Tiberius and Caligula and Claudius and Nero. But then there's like three uh, who are, have really short reigns, like in the mid-60s. And then uh, and then there's a few more before there's Domitian, who's known for his sort of persecution of Christians in the 90s or so, when John probably wrote Revelation. So is it some sequence of Roman emperors? Not sure. Could it just be like historic pagan empires that have opposed the people of God from Assyria to Egypt to Babylon to Persia and on we go uh, and down into our own uh, historical uh, period? It's hard to say. Here's what Tom Triner says. He says, it's best to interpret what John says symbolically and generally. John reflects on the empires that have afflicted Israel throughout its history. And his point in referring to the sixth is that the end is near. When he says a thing about... Uh, the, the, the sixth one, when it does come, will only remain a little while. Okay. I mean, the point is, these are kingdoms that oppose God and his people and his ways, and their end is coming. Their destruction is soon. That's probably as much as we can uh, make out of that for now. Uh, verses 12 and 13, we get this interesting story about uh, the king's uh, the, the ten horns representing ten kings of the earth who haven't yet received power, it says. They are going to receive authority as kings for one hour, again, just a short time, with the beast. And then they're of one mind and they're going to hand their power over to the beast, right? You do what you want. We will support whatever you do. Our authority is yours. And what are the, what's the beast going to do with that authority? He's going to war against the lamb. And I think we've already seen a pretty clear depiction of what happens in this war against the lamb at the end of chapter uh, 16 with the sixth bowl that is poured out it is the gathering of these kings these pagan kings from the east to uh, to make war against god and his people and uh it doesn't go well for them right we read about final judgment uh, at the end of uh, chapter 16 and i think this is the same thing that's going on here right the kings of the earth unite with the beast against the people of god that may happen in an increased sort of intensified way at the end of history, but it happens throughout history. Anytime a system of authority, a human government or institution aligns itself with the kingdom of Satan, of the beast, instead of the kingdom of the lamb, you have this, uh, this dynamic. Friends, we shouldn't be surprised at challenges and hardships that come into our lives because of our identity in Christ. Right? We've been promised this. All along, Jesus told his disciples very plainly before he left them, uh, the world will hate you because of me. We've been promised this kind of mistreatment. Now, it can be frightening and unsettling uh, when we are made the object of scorn or mistreatment because of our stand for Jesus Christ. But friends, we must steal ourselves for this kind of persecution, prepared to count it all joy, as James says, when you encounter trials 
of various kinds. This is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. And this is why the book of Revelation is littered with calls to endurance, right? It ain't gonna be easy to be faithful to Jesus in this age. This calls for endurance over and over. Remain faithful to the one who endures to the end, right? To the one who conquers each of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 said, to the one who conquers, I will grant to him to reign with me on my throne, etc." right? What does it mean to conquer? It means to hold on to the faith. It means to hold on to Christ no matter what. They will make war on the lamb. We've already learned how that would go at the end of chapter 16, but we're told again here, the lamb will conquer them. Why? Because he's Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You can't fight against the King of the Kings. How many kings does it take to overturn the king of all the kings? He is more powerful, more mighty, has more authority than any and all kings of all the nations throughout history combined. Gather them all against the lamb, go ahead. You won't last five minutes. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And those who are with him, this is precious. This is so good to hear and to remember in times of trial and persecution, those who are with him are called and chosen and, and faithful. There is a rich word of encouragement for his people here, where we, we are described in verse 14. Those who are with him are, are called. This, I think, is the, that effectual calling, the drawing of God of a sinner to himself. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, right? So there's the drawing, the calling of his people to himself. He's made us his own in salvation. They are chosen. Our salvation in Christ is not primarily of our own choosing, but by his electing grace. He set his love upon you in eternity past, wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life marked you out as his own. Those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Christians are exhorted to remain faithful here. It is the faithfulness of the Christian, that is the perseverance in faith of the Christian that demonstrates God's elected grace in their lives. God's elected grace is not demonstrated by a box that was checked on a church card when you were eight years old. It doesn't mean that you can't be converted at eight years old. I was like seven when I was converted, I believe. But that's not the basis of our confidence. That's not the, the basis of, of, of our awareness of, the, of God's electing grace in our lives. It is the faithfulness of the Christian that demonstrates God's electing grace. His grace, you see, is the source of our faithfulness. That's how we can endure. That's how we can persevere in faith because his grace is at work in us. And our faithfulness is the proof of his grace. How do we know that we've been chosen? Following Jesus. You're believing in Christ. You're clinging to his word. You're soaking up the ordinary means of grace in his church and his word and in prayer and the spiritual disciplines that he's given to us. This is how we confirm, if you will, among one another, that we belong to him. Not just based on what somebody says or what somebody said a long time ago, but based on the perseverance in faith in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Peter urges Christians to practice godly virtue 
in order to make your calling and election sure. That's 2 Peter 1.10. How can you make your calling and election sure? We're not adding anything to it. You're just confirming, you're, you're gaining assurance of that calling and that election by the presence of godly virtue. So it's the same idea. It's, it's the faithfulness, the enduring and persevering in faithfulness to Christ that demonstrates that we're his, that we belong to him. That's how the world is supposed to know that we belong to him. Sisters and brothers, let's pray for strength to hold fast to Jesus amid the troubles and temptations of this world. Let's encourage and equip one another to run the race with endurance. Last few verses, verse 15 to 18, we get uh, a little bit more kind of summary of, or, or explanation of the images. He says, uh, uh, the waters that you saw upon which the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, right? In other words, this is a, this is a global, um, boundless sort of realm where the city of man makes itself no, I don't think it means that it's one particular sort of one world government. I think it means that all peoples and multitudes and nations and languages of the earth are affected in various times, various ways throughout the age by this city of man, by these systems. And the fact that she sits atop these waters indicates the power and authority held by the city of man over the nations of the earth. In verses 16 and 17, this is so fascinating. The beast and the evil kings who worshipped her and went to her with, uh, for immorality and, and committed idolatry and all these things, abominations with her, they turn against her. And in fact, the forces of evil all kind of start turning on one another. The beast and the evil kings turn against the prostitute and destroy her. Look at this. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Reminds me of uh, time, times in the Old Testament where Israel was going into battle with some opposing army and they were like, I don't know what we're going to do. And God was like, oh, it's cool, I got this. And he just made the enemies confused and they fought each other. Like the army just killed themselves. Like, oh, well, that was cool. I guess the Lord fought the battle for us, right? Same deal. These uh, godless, pagan, uh, Christ-hating systems and authorities, they fight against each other and destroy one another, Tom, to quote Tom Schreiner again, he says, the kings are animated by hatred and thus they destroy the prostitute. Hatred is irrational and demonic. Evil ultimately implodes upon itself. It is inherently self-destructive. The city of man will collapse under the weight of its own evil and hate. This is what happens. Evil can't last. It can't win. It can't last forever. Because even if it's given free reign for a while, destroys itself in the end. And in that implosion and self-destruction, the rulers of Babylon are ultimately serving the sovereign purposes of God and enacting divine judgment upon themselves, as our verse 17 tells us, because God put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are Fulfilled. So we see here that God holds sovereign sway over the desires and decisions of these human rulers, and yet they bear responsibility for their own actions, right? God is not blamed with the evil of these wicked kings, but nevertheless, they serve his purposes. He puts it in their hearts to carry out what he intends to carry out. And this is the persistent paradox in the Bible, 
the interrelationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We always find these two things at, at work together, seeming to pull one another in tension. God accomplishes his purposes and people are morally accountable to him for their choices and actions. Both of those things are undeniably affirmed in the scriptures. But you find it strange to think that God is able to accomplish his plans through the free agency of his human creatures, even their sinful decisions and behaviors. I would suggest that this example is not the most significant one that we have. There's another occasion, an infinitely more important one, where human evil and divine sovereignty partnered harmoniously for the accomplishing of the greatest good, namely the cross of Christ. In Acts 2, shortly after Jesus had risen from the dead and returned to heaven, Peter is preaching to a group of people about what had happened in Jerusalem. And he said to this crowd in verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did this. You put Jesus on the cross and it was lawless. It was wickedness. But what they were doing was carrying out the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. A couple of chapters later in Acts 4, verse 27, a group of Christians say, in this city were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the prophets of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Human sin and divine sovereignty work hand in hand all the time. And if they didn't, and if we deny that that is a, 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 a possibility or a reality, we have a real problem with what happened at the cross. God's sovereignty and human evil are working together without God thereby being guilty of evil himself. God is able in his mysterious sovereignty to bring about good redemptive purposes through the sinful choices of free creatures. And while we may not be able to fully comprehend how this is so, we nevertheless ought to give him thanks that he takes our mess, our brokenness, our sin, and makes beautiful new things from them. That's what the gospel is all about. God put forward his son, the Lord Jesus, to become a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Our sin stood in the way of God reconciling us to himself. And there needed to be a sin bearer to carry our sin away from his presence so that we could be invited back into his family. And Jesus came to be that sin bearer for us. In his death on the cross, the judgment of God upon sin was fully visited for all those who will admit their sin to God and trust in Jesus Christ as the only sufficient sacrifice. The city of man sets itself up in opposition to God and his word and his ways, and it utterly disdains the gospel of a crucified king. But the city of God is all about recognizing our brokenness and our need for what only he could provide. And when we find in Jesus all that we need, for this life now and for an eternal hope to come, we are willing to turn our backs on whatever other allegiances may call to us. 
whatever, whatever other temptations or seductions may come into our lives, whatever other powers or, or resources make themselves available and alluring to us, we are willing to say, I am with him. This calls for endurance. This is what the people of God need in this day to stand not with the kingdom of the beast, but with the kingdom of the lamb. Let's pray together.